You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. How are we doing this morning? Did everyone enjoy the extra hour of sleep? I'm pretty sure heaven's going to have like a weekly one of those right there. <laughs> one extra hour. Uh, before we get going, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7. That's where we're going to be today. But before we do that, I want to what, get you in the loop on one just kind of church family issue that is a really, really big deal. And so if you were at the, uh, the prayer meeting on Wednesday, uh, you heard me talk about this a little bit. But I want to make sure just the, you know, across the breadth of our church family that we know what's going on. Um, in terms of just a, a big overarching kind of land, all that good stuff. And so uh, most of you know, if you've been around here for a while, that we bought our second piece of property. Now, if you haven't been a wa- around for, a, a, you know, over six or eight months, um, that's a long story. You can go back and catch some of the family podcasts back in the uh, early part of January and kind of get all the details of that. Uh, but we have two pieces of property now. And one of the things that made us pull the trigger on the 23 acres that is on Walnut Grove and 287 on that corner is that we had a man who was willing to basically give us what we've just called a buyback agreement, where at the end of three years, if we decided that we did not want that piece of property, that he would just buy it back from us and we would have our money back and we'd go on down the road like it never happened. And so, uh, which was a great deal. It got us to the point of saying, yes, we can do this and we feel like this is a good, responsible thing to do and um, we feel great about that move. Now, that guy has since then come back and done one step better than that. So the buyback is a big deal. I mean, it's saying that I'll take your problem if you don't want that problem at some point. Um, But he's come back and really done something one step better. And he's come back and said, uh, rather than doing kind of the buyback at the end of this, how about I do this? How about I just buy 13 acres of that 23 for you and just give that to you? So let me put that in the most common language that I could. It would be like a person saying, let me give you $700,000, you buy the land, and it's all yours. Now, can we just take a second to see that that is like God's amazing grace toward us? Like, those things don't just happen. Like, God just said, here is $700,000, there you go. And so I just want to take a moment for us as a church family to like breathe in that sort of grace from God. Like there are millions of churches out there and like all but a few, you know, they don't have stories like that. And so this is like God's extraordinary grace toward us. And so in light of that, I think that's like a moment as a church family that it's okay to celebrate. It's okay to like really thank God for that. Yeah, I think that would be like totally appropriate for sure. And so in light of that, I just want to take a moment. Why don't we um, pray together and just thank God? And so I just want to encourage you to do that with me, just where you're sitting there, um, that we just get to thank God for his provision, his grace toward us, his mercy toward us as a church family. You know, over the last four and a half years, I feel like I have been like, I've had like this front row seat of seeing God meet us in a million different ways with his amazing grace. And here's the last part of that story, right? Or another part of that story. So in light of that, why don't you pray with me? God, we want to be thankful people who are good at celebrating grace. And God, I pray that in just this moment, we could breathe deeply of that, of how you and your grace have chosen to meet us right where we are as a church family. I don't even have words to put on just how full my heart is when I think about that. When I think about how humbling it is for us as a church family to receive that sort of grace from you. And God, I pray this would be a moment where you you stir up in us unbelievable faith in you and trust in you to know that you are a father who loves to dazzle his children with grace and mercy. God, help us feel that like in the deepest parts of our soul. Help us know that. Help us be blown away by that. God, create in us a posture toward you that just thanks you for that and celebrates you for that. And so God, we just say that we are grateful, that we are thankful. God, that we wanna be sons and daughters who trust. And God, I pray that this would be a moment that you cultivate all of that. It's in your good name we pray, amen. 
And as you're just thinking about our church family over the next few, really months, and even the next year or two, um, that you'd be praying that we have these two pieces of property. We're praying that God would bring the right buyer at the right time. And I just encourage you, I don't know kind of what your daily little list of things that you want to pray for, but when you're thinking about Stonegate, that would be one that would be a good thing to pray for us, is that God would come through and do that for us, bring the right buyer at the right time. And in light of, you know, we're going to have a move out of, of this conference center at some point in our church's life. And so in light of that, just continue to pray for God to be cultivating generosity within our church family. That this would just even be a moment of seeing that sort of generosity extended toward us. It would be a moment where God grows that sort of faith and generosity in, in us. And we've got two months left of this year. So I think this is worth just reminding you that this would be a really good time to check like 2013. Are you where you want to be in, in terms of your giving and generosity? And you can go and check all that on the city. So I just encourage you to do that to make sure that doesn't surprise you at the end of the year on where you are, but that you are fully aware of of what your generosity has looked like over the last 10 or so months. Okay, so with that said, we are in Mark 7. Let me me preface Mark 7 and where we're going to go today um, by just making an observation culturally. Our culture is very, very aware that there are things broken in, in just the human race that there is brokenness, that there are things that shouldn't be there, that there is dysfunction, that the world is not the way that it should be. That is culturally a a very present, you know, awareness, that that people know that, that things are broke. Things are not how they were intended to be, that this thing is not going the way it should go. Now, if you need like living proof of that, all you have to do is walk into a Barnes and Noble and the biggest section you're going to see in that Barnes and Noble is going to be a section titled self-help. That is living proof that we culturally know that something is broken and we want it fixed. I I love how one author said it. He said it this way, that there is nothing in life more obvious than the need for change. That something is broken and that something needs to be changed. There is a deep awareness of that. But let me take it out of like the cultural kind of big in the cloud sort of a perspective. And let's just put it like on the ground. In this room, every one of us, if you'll just take time long enough to just sit and look at yourself, look at your own heart. Every one of us know that there are things buried in us that we hate about us. And by the way, this is why many of us are so busy. It's because we don't want to take time to think about this. We don't want to still ourselves long enough to see this in us. But if we'll just sit long enough and look at ourselves long enough and look, you know, inside of us, we're going to see that there are a million things in us that we can't stand about us. And I mean, we could just go through the laundry list of things, right? I mean, it's everything from addictions. Some of it is to food. Some of it is to work. Some of it is to a substance. Some of it is to pornography for some in the room. That, that men and women with a deep addiction that I have to have that. It, it's rampant. I mean, we could go down the list. Some of it, it's anger. We explode in anger all the time. For some of us, our life is characterized by impatience and frustration. For others, it's this addiction to the approval of people. For others, it's this, this rebellious little spirit that we have that can't submit to authority and God. That we buck all of that. I mean, same gender attraction. I mean, all of those things exist in this room. And if we're honest, when we take a look in us, there is like this deep want for change. I mean, this has got to be different. This has got to go differently. Like you look at your life and you think, man, next week or this week, this is going to be the change week. This is going to be when it happens. And we just revert right back to what we were. I mean, that exists in all of us if we'll take time to look at it. So, and I love how this author, what he goes on to say, in light of there being this universal awareness of this need for change, he he says this, nothing is more obvious than the need for change. We're all aware of that, that there are things in the world and namely in us that really, really, really need to change. But he goes on to say this, you know, we've got this universal awareness. So everyone knows that something needs to change, but nothing is less obvious than what needs to change and how that change happens. So everybody knows that something needs to change, but there's all this confusion on what needs to change. What is that particular thing that does need changing and how that change happens? And if you, if you need to just see proof of this, go back to Barnes & Noble in the self-help section and just see the millions of different solutions to the problems. 
The millions of different answers to the what needs to change and the how that change happens. And here's the truth. In almost all of those self-help books, you know what you're going to find? Answers that run absolutely contrary to the scriptures. Absolutely contrary to it. So in this passage, in light of all of us knowing that there are things in us that need to change, in this passage, Jesus is going to show us what it is in particular that needs changing and how that change happens in us. What it is that can produce that sort of change that we're looking for. So he's going to answer the what and the how. So in light of that, let's look at Mark 7. Mark 7. So um, context, Mark 7, in the first few verses, you've got the religious leaders. These are the Pharisees and scribes. They have come to confront Jesus. They're not his friends at this point. They are plotting his destruction at this point, according to Mark 3, 6. So they have come to confront. And the thing they pick to initiate this confrontation is they're looking at these disciples in the first three or four verses here, and they're seeing that the disciples are not like obeying the tradition of the elders. They're not washing like the, the, the Pharisees want them to wash. This isn't a command of God issue. This is their tradition issue. And they're not doing it like they want it done. They're, they're looking at these people and saying, they're looking at the disciples and saying, they are not behaving the way we want them to behave. And then in verse 14, Jesus is gonna look at these uh, Pharisees and he's gonna say, you are all uptight about the behavior issue. You are making behavior the thing. But Jesus is going to show that in verses 14 through 23, behavior is a thing, but it is not the thing. He's looking at the Pharisees saying, hey, you're all caught up in this behavioral stuff when the problem is actually much deeper than behavior. The issue runs so much deeper than what you're doing. So you pick it up there in verse 18. So, oh, and by the way, he tells this little parable about like, you know, you're not going to be defiled by things that come from outside into you. But, but it's the things that are inside of you that come out. Those are the things that defile you. So then he explains it in verse 18. What did that mean? What, that little parable that he told. And, and here's how he explains it to his disciples. He's going to show them that the problem runs much deeper than their behavior, what they're doing. He says it this way. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? In other words, this, these behavioral things out here are not going to be the things that defile him. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And you might underline this phrase in verse 21. For from within, here's another one. Out of the heart of man, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So if we're gonna, if we're gonna get to the what needs to change, we're all seeing that something needs to change. There's stuff like immorality, there's stuff like wickedness and evil thoughts and theft. There's all of this stuff that needs to change up here on a behavioral level. But Jesus is saying, if you really wanna know what needs to change, you're gonna have to get beyond behavior. You're gonna have to get beyond that to this word that's mentioned three times in the first 23 verses of Mark 7. In verse 6, 18, and 21, you've gotta get to this word heart. If you really want to know what needs to change, you've got to see what this word heart means. So let's just start by defining the word heart. When the Bible uses the word heart, what, what does it mean? So as a, for instance, in verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man. When Jesus says the word heart, what, what is Jesus talking about? So the heart defined. And by the way, the word heart is used 900 times in the Bible. So you know if something's used 900 times, it's a pretty important idea. So we've, we've got to think clearly about what this is, this word heart. So here's a definition for it, the word heart. The heart is the source inside of us from which all our actions flow. It's this thing inside of you from which all of your doing externally comes. So this internal source that produces all of your external actions. Okay, now when you're thinking about the word heart, I think maybe another way to say this would be, it's the real you. It's the inner you. The Bible divides you in two parts. You've got the outer you, which is your body, and then you've got your heart, the internal you. The heart is the summation of the internal you, the real you, that part of you inside of you, that, that you. Okay, now it encompasses three different categories of things. 
Now, this is really important because our vocabulary shows sometimes that we don't get this very well. So the heart in the Bible is this big thing that encompasses the mind. So the heart encompasses the mind, like how you think about things. So in Mark 2, um, verse 6, it says the scribes were, were questioning in their hearts. See, it's like a mental, your mental faculty, your, your thinking, that is a part of your heart, it's saying. So it encompasses, the heart encompasses your mind and it encompasses your emotions, your affections, your desires. And this is how we most often use the word heart in our culture, Western culture. So we'll say things like when a guy's girlfriend breaks up with him, what, what does he say? She broke my heart. It's like the plot line of every country song, right? So, so we, we often use it that way as, as he broke or she broke my heart. It's the affections. It's your desires. It's that part of us. The heart encompasses both the mental side, like your mental faculties and your emotional side, like how you feel about life, what, what you're feeling deep in your heart. This is why in 1 Samuel 1 verse 8, when Hannah is infertile, she can't have a, a son. Her husband looks at her and says, why are you sad in your heart? See, like you feel with your heart. Um, but there's also one more. The heart encompasses the will, like what you do. Like it, it, it determines like when you come to a fork in the road, if you're going to take a, the right turn or the left turn, the heart is what leads you to one of those paths. So it's all of that. It's the mind, like your mental faculties. It's your emotions, your affections, and it's the will. It's all of those different things that make up the biblical category of the word heart. I love how Paul Tripp, he's an author and biblical counselor. This is how he describes a, the heart. He says, the heart is the center of your personhood. It's what, it, what, it's what makes you you, the center of your personhood, the seat of your thoughts, desires, emotions, motivations, and your values. And I like this imagery he uses. He says, it's your control center. It's what determines everything else that you do is your heart, the control center. And then he uses this uh, metaphor for it. The heart is the steering wheel of your life. It's like the thing that determines, are you going to go this way or that way? This is the heart, the biblical category of the word heart. It's this internal part of you that determines all of your external activity. Heart. That's the heart defined. Okay, now let me kind of jump back into the, Jesus is trying to help us see the, the what of our problem. What is our problem? So to get back to that, let me, let me, or help me but by putting yourself into a doctor's office. You remember the last time you went to the doctor's office because of something that was happening internally to you. Something was wrong and you needed help to get it fixed. And so you walked into the ER or the doctor's office and what's the first thing they start doing when they get you there? They start asking questions about your, you know, your health history and about your, you know, your parents' health and all this stuff to try to figure things out. Then they start taking your vital signs. They might start drawing blood. They start poking and prodding on the things that are hurting. Now, what is the doctor trying to do in that moment? When you walk into the office and something is obviously wrong, what is the doctor trying to first do? The most important thing the doctor does when you walk into the doctor's office is to get an accurate diagnosis, to figure out, what exactly the problem is. Because without an accurate diagnosis, it's impossible to get to the appropriate solution. And Jesus right here in this passage is taking his disciples into the doctor's office and he's saying, I want you to see what is wrong with humanity. You know, all of these things that we're seeing, these behavioral problems, all of these issues up here, I want you to see down underneath that what the problem is. And in this passage, Jesus is gonna diagnose it. Look at verse 21. Here is Jesus's answer to the what question. What is it that needs to change? Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. It's just saying all of those bad things that people do, all of those things, he's saying, verse 23, all of those evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus' diagnosis for the human problem is this. The heart is the problem. Your heart, not like the little muscular thing inside of you, but the control center, the, the, the steering wheel of your life. That heart inside of you is the problem. So he's saying, listen, immorality, it's a problem. Theft is a problem. Wickedness is a problem, but underneath all of these problems up here, all of these a problems up here, the problem underneath that is the heart. The heart of the human problem is the human heart. This is what he's saying. The, 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 our problem when it comes to like the root issues underneath all of our behavioral issues up here, 
Our root problem is our heart, is what, it, what Jesus is saying here. He's diagnosing the, the human problem as the human heart. Now, and let's just kind of build a little bit of biblical theology around that. If you know your Bible, you're going to know this, that that human heart problem is hereditary, right? Like you have inherited that from your first parents, Adam and Eve. When in the garden, they rebelled against God. They stiff-armed God to try to be God in God's place. That same human heart of rebellion and like turning from God in an effort to be your own God, that same human heart that they had there was passed down to every one of their sons and daughters. Like it is an inescapable human reality that we have hearts that are rebellious toward God. Like we don't come out of the womb innocent. We don't come out of the womb without deep heart problems. Every one of us, when we are born, we have inherited that same heart problem that looks away from God for life and meaning and satisfaction. Every one of us have. And Jesus is saying, listen, that is the heart of the problem right there. That human heart that you have, that is your problem. That is your issue. Behind all of these behavioral things up here, that's it. Okay, now let me just draw out a couple of implications from that. Just to try to clarify what this means. When, when Jesus is saying that the heart is the problem, what, what does he mean by that? Let me, let me give you a, a few things that help come around that. Number one, implication one. It means that our primary problem isn't our circumstances. Our primary problem isn't, is inside of us, not outside of us. Now, this flies right in the face of a lot of popular kind of self-help stuff, doesn't it? Because here's what a lot of popular self-help stuff says. Your problem is your circumstances. Y your problem is that your dad didn't love you like he should. Your problem is that your boss is a jerk. Your problem is that your husband's a jerk. Your problem is that your wife's a jerk. Of course you're going to behave like you're behaving. Look at who's around you. This is how self-help stuff works. But Jesus is saying, no, no, that's not it. The problem is not your circumstances. The problem is your heart. Maybe you could think of it this way. Your circumstances aren't the cause of your sin. Your circumstances are the occasion of your sin. See, this is how, this is how the problem runs. Your circumstances don't cause you to sin. They are just the occasion to show you the sin that's in you. Now, again, that just runs directly contrary to how we feel about life, doesn't it? There is like an incessant need to blame shift all of our problems. You see it in Genesis 3. When, when Adam sinned and God came after Adam, what did he say? It was my wife's problem. God, if you really want to know the issue here, look at her. See, this is where it initially went. You remember in, Genesis, or in Exodus chapter 32, this is right after... Uh, Moses has gone up on the, the mountain to meet with God and the people of Israel panic. And they look at Aaron and they give him all of their gold jewelry and they say, make for us an idol. So he puts it all in the fire. He fashions a calf. And do you remember what happens when Moses comes down and confronts him on it? He, he looks at Moses and says, hey, you know these people. They're crazy. Yeah, yeah, anybody would do this, right? They're, they're crazy people. And then he says this, and I don't even know how it happened. We just threw the gold in and a calf came out. I, that same incessant need to justify our behavior with our circumstances lives in every one of us. So, so if we're the guy and our, and our wife didn't give us the respect we deserve and we blow up at her and somebody says, well, what's the problem? The last thing we want to do is say, I'm the problem. And the first thing we want to do is look at her and say, it's her. She is the reason that I did this. She is the reason that I said that. I don't know how many times I've heard in the context of alcohol, this sort of a statement said, alcohol made me do that. Al alcohol made me say that. Can I just tell you, alcohol will never make you do anything. All it does is loosen your lips so that what can come out of you comes out much more easily. See, the problem is not external things. The problem is internal things. It's our heart. Here's the second implication. Our primary problem isn't our behavior. It's, it's not primarily our behavior. So hear me clearly that I'm not saying behavior is not a problem. It is a problem in all of our lives. If, you know, if you just take the last week of your life and if somebody followed you around 24-7 with a video camera, it would be really embarrassing for them to show the lowlights of any of our weeks, wouldn't it? We would, none of us would like that if somebody did that. 
So behavior is a problem, but Jesus is just wanting us to see here that behavior is a problem up here, but underneath that problem up here is the problem of the heart. This is why he says in verse 21, for from within, it's out of the heart of man come all of these other things. It's not an outside-in problem. It's an inside-out problem that the problem is bigger than our behavior. The problem is our hearts. Maybe you can think of it this way. Our problem is never first murder. It's never first murder. Our problem is always first a murderous heart. Our problem is never first immorality, sexual immorality. It's never first pornography. It is first a heart that has this ravenous want to go outside of God's boundaries to get what we want. Our heart is never, our problem is never first anger. Our problem is first this self-absorbed way we look at life. And anytime somebody kind of push on us, we explode at them. Anytime somebody doesn't kind of fit our plan for life, we explode. Anytime somebody doesn't give us what we want, we explode. It's the heart. So th- this is what he's saying, that it's never first an issue of your behavior. It is always first a problem of the heart. I mean, just think about it this way. Why do you sin? Why is it that I sin, you sin, we sin? The problem is a heart issue. Our heart is looking to other things other than God for our satisfaction and happiness in life. We are trusting and treasuring things other than God. This is why we sin. Maybe you could see it better this way. Has there ever been a moment, and just think about it in terms of pornography. Has has there ever been a moment where somebody's like put a gun to your head and said, you've got to do this right now or else. That's not how pornography works, is it? You know, nobody has to put a gun to our head to make us do that. We do that because we want to do that. Are we seeing that? See, Jesus is saying, listen, the problem with pornography is never first an issue of behavior. The battle is not on an issue of behavior. The war for pornography is an issue of the heart. It's that you want things that you shouldn't want. It's that you're looking to things other than me to get what you want. See, that's where the issue is. It's a battle of the heart, Jesus is saying. The issue is always bigger than our behavior. It always goes right down to the heart. And third implication. When we start to see that our issue is bigger than our behavior, that the issue is actually our heart, that we've all got serious heart problems that lead to all sorts of behavioral problems up here. When we start to see that, it clues us in. Our hearts show us the depth of our wickedness of just how deep the whole of sin goes in us. See, when we start to see that our problem is not just behavior, but it's actually our heart, we get a whole new view for just how wicked we really, really are. See, when you think that your heart, when you think that your problem is primarily behavior, here's what will happen. You will be just like the Pharisees in this passage. When you think your issue is primarily behavior, and when you can nail that behavior... You will do exactly what the Pharisees do here and you'll begin to look down your nose at those people who just can't figure it out, who just can't get a clue. See, see when when your issue is behavior, when when it sits up here on this level rather than at the heart, you will always find the behaviors that you're good at and you'll start to look down at those who aren't so good at it, just like the Pharisees. And you'll start to say ridiculous statements like these. See if you've ever said this. I would never do that. There is no way, you'll watch somebody do their like extreme sin and you'll have a statement like this. There is no way I would ever do that thing. If if you're saying statements like that, and by the way, we, we all said those, had those moments, right? Because we really think that our problem is up here, not down here. See, that is evidence. When we, when we look at someone and say, there is no way I could do that. We don't understand that we both have the same heart problem. That person has just come to full fruition and ours hasn't yet. In his commentary on, on uh, First Peter, Edmund Clowney tells this story of Yahil Denor. And that name might um, sound familiar to those who are a little bit older. And so what Yahil Denor was a Jewish man who was sent to a concentration camp back in World War II. And uh, years later in 1961, um, the, the Jewish guys that kind of had this whole set of people that were trying to catch all of these um, you know, not Nazis kind of higher ups that were responsible for much of what happened in Germany. And they came across and they caught Adolf Eichmann, 
who was kind of the, the architect of what was the Holocaust, how they were killing people, these concentration camps. And so they arrested him, they brought him to trial, and then they would use these concentration camp survivors to do the testifying against this man of his ruthless brutality, what he had done to so many people. They used these people to testify against him. And so they brought in Yalhil Denor, who was sent to Auschwitz and survived that whole thing. And when he comes into the room and sees this man who for so many years personified evil for him, he literally began sobbing uncontrollably. He fell to the floor and fainted in that moment of seeing him. And years later, uh, Mike Wallace did a 60-minute interview with Yahil Denor and was asking him the question. They replayed that segment of the video of that happening, that moment where he falls and faints. And he said, what was it in that moment? What, what were you responding to? What was the cause of that? Was it your anger? Was it your hatred? Were you remembering things that happened? What, what was it that caused that reaction in you? And, and here's how the response goes. No, it was none of those, Denor said. And, and rather, as he goes on to explain to Wallace, that all at once he realized Eichmann that this, you know, this horrible personification of evil person, this Eichmann was not a godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. He realized in this moment that Eichmann was an ordinary man, just a normal guy, this Eichmann was. And then he goes on to say this, in seeing that, that he wasn't this monster of a man, he was an ordinary man. He goes on to say, in that moment, what produced this reaction in me is I was afraid for myself. I saw in that moment that if that is an ordinary man like me, I saw that in that moment, I am capable to do everything he did. I am exactly like him. And Wallace goes on to kind of summarize this whole, you know, terrible discovery that Denor made in that moment like this. He summarized it by saying, Eichmann is in all of us. It's in all of us. H have you come to grips with there is an Eichmann in you? Hey, see, this is what, when we start to see that our problem is not just up here on the behavior level, but it's down here in our hearts, that is when we start to see that we are much worse than we dare dream. That there is an Eichmann in all of us. See, it, it puts us in a position at that point where we'll no longer say, there's no way I could do that because guess what? You can. That same human heart that was transferred down to Adolf Eichmann is the same human heart that was put in you because of our first parents, Adam and Eve's sin. That same heart exists in you. Like if you come to grips with that, that you are capable of all of that. And if you're not doing it, it's only God's grace that is restraining that. See, think about in the Bible, all the words that we love like grace and redemption and rescue and salvation only make sense when we realize we are capable of anything. Th think about the story of David. You remember David in the Bible? He is the man in the Bible that it says he was a man after God's own heart. He is one of the good guys, right? He is one of the best of the guys in the Bible. But you know, like he had a, a terrible episode in his life, right? Where he looks down from his roof. He sees a woman that he wants. He says, in that moment, I'll do whatever it takes to get it. I don't care. So he, he goes and gets that woman. He brings her into his house. He has an affair with this lady, commits adultery with this lady. And then to cover his tracks, murders her husband. Now think about what the Bible is trying to show us in that moment. Is it trying to show us that, uh, that that is just like in the worst of us? This Eichmann, he just lived in like the worst of people? No, in that moment when David, we're seeing David do this, it is showing us, the Bible is showing us that even in the absolute best of men and women, Eichmann exists. That we are capable of that. If David is, I'll guarantee you, you are. That there is not a sin that we could put on the list over here that you are not 100% capable of committing apart from the grace of God. Now, admittedly, when we think about sin like this, it's not just a behavior issue, it's a heart issue. And those heart issues exist in us. Like maybe you can think of it this way, that Eichmann lives in acorn form in all of us. In seed form. It, it hasn't come out to a holocaust and killing millions of people, but that little seed exists in every human heart when it's born to make it capable of stuff like that. And like admittedly, that, that's kind of a punch in the gut, isn't it? Like that's not overly comfortable to, to look in the mirror and think, I am capable of even that. 
But can I just tell you, until you come to grips with that and realize that about you, you will never be able to cry out with Paul, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Until you see that, you will never have arms up in the air begging God for rescue and grace and mercy. See, until you start to see that and recognize that in you, you will never be ready for the redemption that God offers you, for the salvation that God gives his sons and daughters. You'll never be ready for grace until you see just how badly in need of grace you are. So Jesus is saying that the human problem is the heart, that the heart is the heart of the problem. And then he's going to go one step further. In, in light of knowing that, that the heart is the problem, Jesus is, is making it clear in this passage that the heart is his primary concern. That the heart is God's primary concern. So let's just draw out implications. That means, if, if that is his primary concern, it means that God's goal is not just a change in your behavior. It's not just you having good behavior. That is not God's goal for your life. The top of the list goal for you is not God looking at you saying, boy, they have nailed all the sets of rules. That is not at the top of God's list. If it was at the top of God's list, the Pharisees would have nailed it, wouldn't they have? See, the Pharisees who this controversy is all kind of revolving around in Mark 7, they are the people who are doing it all right. They are the people who are reading their Bible the most. They are praying the most. They are fasting the most. They are memorizing scripture the most. They are doing everything the most. They are serving the most. They are going to the church the most. They are doing it all. And do you know who gets some of the harshest words in the New Testament? Pharisees, the people who have the best behavior. And you see this in Mark 7, verse 6. Look, look back at verse 6. Here is Jesus' words to these people who are doing all the right things. In Mark 7, verse 6, he says this. And he said to them, the people who are doing it all right. And he said to them, well did, I pro well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now, normally in a conversation when you're confronting someone and you throw out the word hypocrite, like you look at someone and say, you're a hypocrite. That's like the climatic point, right, of your confrontation. But Jesus is just getting warmed up here. Hypocrites like the, the, the lead into this. You hypocrites. As it is written, here it gets even worse. This people, th these Pharisees, these people right here, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, Jesus is saying, listen, you give all the right lip service, you have all the behavior nailed, but I have this problem. Your heart is in no way, shape, or form in love with me. Your heart is far from me. Th this is what he says in Isaiah chapter one, when he looks at the people of Israel who have gathered for their solemn assemblies. They are fasting. They are doing all of these ritualistic things. And God looks at them and says, hey, all these religious looking things that you're doing, you know what they make me? Nauseated. They make me sick. Because I see your behavior and I can see underneath your behavior and I know that it's not rooted in a love for me. So in light of that, your, your behavior means nothing to me unless it's connected to a heart that's engaged and loves me. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 23. Listen to these stinging words from Jesus to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 25. These people who are doing it all right. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind, you blind Pharisee, First, clean the, out, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly you appear beautiful. It looks like you have life together. You've got all the rules down. Outwardly you appear beautiful, but within you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Are you seeing what Jesus is saying there? that he cares much more than your behavior. He could see right through the Pharisees' outward conformity, their, their moral behavior. He could see right down into their heart and he wasn't pleased with what he saw because their hearts were far from him. Their hearts were in no way engaged with him. Do you know why, why it is that God is not primarily concerned with your behavior? Because you, it's so easy to fake behavior with a heart that's far from God. It's so easy to do all the right things to kind of put your face on when you come to church, slap high fives, we're doing great, our marriage is great, everything is great, when inside you are in shambles. It's so easy to fake that. And our culture is so good at it. But Jesus is saying, man, I'm not fooled by that. Man, I can see through your behavior. 
I, I've illustrated this, um, th- this kind of idea a couple of times with this story of a mom who goes to church with her young son and they're in the middle of the service. He's doing a great job of obeying. He's sitting down, but in the middle of the service, he decides, I want to stand up. So he stands up on the pew right beside his mom in the middle of this service. And she kind of looks over with that, mom, I will kill you right now. Sit down, look. But we all know that look, right? And so he immediately sits down. And then a couple of minutes later, he slides a little handwritten note over to her. She opens it up and reads it and reads this on it. I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> See, th- this is why, this is why God is not primarily concerned with your behavior. Because listen, you can give him your behavior and never give him you. You can do all the right things externally. You, you, can, you can do all, you can check all the boxes externally in your moral, you know, moral behavior. And at the end of the day, not give God you, not, not give him your heart. So God's goal is not a good behavior thing for you. I mean, God, I mean God, God does work into us good behavior, but that's not God's primary goal. God's primary goal is a changed heart. And here's why. Because when God has your heart, he has you. When God has your heart, the internal steering wheel control center, he has everything else. See, you can give God good, good behavior in your marriage and still withhold yourself. But if God has your heart, guess what he's also got? The right behavior in your marriage. See, everything flows from here. And when God gets this in you, he's got everything else that goes along with that. So let me just take a moment to apply this to the room. And, and this, is, this is why I'm scared for so many of us that are in this room, you know, this morning. It's because we live in a, in a Bible Belt culture who is so good at doing all the right things without a deep love for Jesus. We are so good at coming to church. I mean, by the groves, we're in church, we're, we're serving, we're, we're holding babies, we're, we're doing stuff, you know, greeting people at the door, we're reading our Bible, we're praying, we're doing all of these things. And the problem is we're doing all of these religious looking things without a heart connected to God, without any like real affection for God in our soul, without any deep love for God in our soul, without any deep want for God in our soul. We're doing all the right things up here with a heart that is far from God. And that is normal in our culture. It's even praised in our culture. Donald Barnhouse, he was um, a pastor at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. And I love, one time he answered the question, what would things look like if Satan really took over a city? I mean, Satan really comes in and sets up shop and things are happening you know, in the kingdom of Satan type of a a moment. What would a city look like in that? And here's his response to that. Satan comes in and takes over a city. All the bars would be closed. Pornography and prostitution banished. The streets pristine and filled with tidy pedestrians. There would be no swearing, only yes sirs and yes ma'ams. And churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached and Christ is not cherished. Think about that. He's saying, if you want to know what, what would be a win for Satan, it's for people to, to morally and ex- externally conform to all of kind of God's ways for us up here, our behavior. But at the same time, have hearts that are far from God, not connected with God, not loving God. Can I just say what a Christian is? I, I, one of the best ways I could, in a metaphor, is Psalms 42.1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after God. That is what a Christian is. A person that has a soul and a heart that is panting after God, that is wanting God, that loves God, is pursuing God. And can I just tell you what the problem is with so many of our churches? That as long as our buildings are full and people are kind of morally conforming, we are okay with them regardless of if they have a deep love for Jesus. Can I just say what's wrong with a lot of our parenting? As long as we can kind of raise up good citizens, responsible citizens who are kind of making a life for themselves, have a good marriage, are kind of doing the parenting thing okay, we are just fine with that. They're just kind of good moral citizens up here. We are just fine with that regardless of whether or not they have a deep love for Jesus. And can I just tell you, when God is looking at us, he is not primarily concerned with our moral conformity up here. He is primarily concerned with our hearts. And are they engaged with him? Do they love him? 
Do our hearts, are they exploding with desire and appreciation and awe and wonder at his grace for us? That's what God's after, a changed heart. When he has your heart, he has everything else to go with it. Now, this is where the sobering news comes in. And we'll finish with this, kind of land the plane here. This is where it gets really um, difficult. Is the heart can only be changed by God. See, if, if behavior was the issue, we would have hope, right? We could get a few new techniques. And for a day or two, we could probably even change our behavior to match what it should be. If behavior was our problem, we would have hope. But when a heart change is our only hope, we have deep problems because you and I don't have the potential or the power to change our hearts. You can't make your heart desire something different. Only God can. Only God has that sort of power to come into a human heart and to make it new, to do something different with it, to give it new desires and new hopes and new dreams and new wants and new pursuits. Only God can do that. And here is where the great news of the gospel comes in, in two parts. The good news of the gospel is that God actually loves to create new hearts. God loves doing that. You know, it's an interesting thing in Mark chapter 7. It's as if Jesus is looking at this group of people and he looks at them and he says, do you know your problem? It's your heart. That's your problem. It's wicked. All of these behavioral things up here, this immorality, this theft, all of this nasty stuff is coming from your nasty heart. It's defiled you. It's made you wicked in the sight of God. Your heart is the problem. And in that moment, it's like he slams down the mic and walks off the stage. It's, I mean, think about if you were there in that moment, Jesus just told you that your heart's the problem and it's desperately wicked. I mean, and then he just leaves. I mean, I think you would be like the disciples. You're going to have to explain this to me. What, what, what do we do now? Like, what is the hope in this? And it's just interesting. In Mark 7, Jesus doesn't offer them the solution in Mark 7. And here's why. Because he is on his way to the solution in Mark chapter 15. And in Mark chapter 15 is where Jesus, after living a perfect life in our place, he was slaughtered on a cross for our sin. All of God's wrath came crashing down on him, crushed under the weight of God's wrath for our sin. That, that's the solution. That it is through Jesus that God comes in and remakes wicked hearts. That, that he takes these, I love how Isaiah puts it. He takes these hearts of stone and he makes them a heart of flesh. Ephesians 2, he comes in and he takes these dead hearts and he remakes them and puts life into them. The good news of the gospel is that your wicked heart can actually be changed by Jesus. That can actually be made new by Jesus and that Jesus loves doing that. He lo this, is, this is the meaning of, of 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? A new creation. That God has totally remade your heart. That when God saves a person, he doesn't just make a better you. He makes a new you. He brings you to life. He does something deep in your soul where now you have a new set of desires. Now you have a new set of hopes. You went from sin-centered at the core to when God saves you, now you are God-centered at the core. That's the good news of the gospel is that God loves to come into people's lives who have deep, deep heart problems and change them. This is what God does when he saves a person, brings them into his family as sons and daughters, is he gives them new hearts. He creates new hearts in them. But, but the good news of the gospel doesn't stop there. It's not just that God creates new, heart, you know, new hearts and says, now go for it. Have a good life and we'll see you later. That's not what God does. God not only creates new hearts, he loves to keep our hearts. He keeps his fingers right in our heart, continually molding and shaping those hearts into the conformity of Jesus. Philippians chapter two has been really helpful for me and we'll, we'll be done with this. Philippians two has been really helpful for me lately. And let me put it on the screen for you. It says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, work this thing out. Get, keep your heart going. Keep your heart pure. He's saying that you've got some responsibility. You've got some discipline here. You've got to get yourself in the way of grace. But then he says, but I want you to know what's going to en enable you to work out your salvation. What's going to enable you to keep your heart centered on God? What's going what's to enable that? Look at verse 13. This is what enables it. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So who's doing the acting in verse 13? Who's doing it? Who's verse 13 about? It's about God. the, The verse is about God. He is the one doing the acting. And what is God doing in verse 13? Or I'm sorry, where is God in verse 13? So so you've got God, it's about God, and where is God? God is in you. That when you become a son or daughter of God, God not only remakes your heart, he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So so you've got God doing the the, the acting here. Where is God? He is in you. And what is God doing in verse 13? He is willing and working. Think about that right now. If you're a son or daughter of God, that God right now is willing and working in your heart that still needs help, that still needs rescue, that still needs changing. Right now, God is working. And what is God working toward? Into verse 13. His good pleasure, namely the conformity of Jesus. God, he is in you. And what is God doing? He's working. And what is God working to do in you? To bring your heart to full conformity, to make you more and more look like Jesus. Not just fix your behavior, but fix your heart. That's what God's doing. I don't know if you are an Olympic buff, but I love the Olympics. And we've got some Olympics coming around here in just a few more months. But one of my, for me, that like one of the iconic Olympic moments for me was in 1992. Do you remember the name Derek Redman? He was a British sprinter, 400-meter guy, and he was by far the hands-down favorite that year. He'd already broken some of the British records, doing great. It was his race to win. They, in the Olympics, they, you know, they fire the gun, the, you know, they, they start around the track, and they get to the end of the back stretch, and he pulls his hamstring. I mean, just, I mean, the climax of his, you know, track and field career, and he just pulled his hamstring. And everyone, you know, the race finishes, everyone's done, and everyone thought he just probably kind of hobbled off the track. But then you look back and the crowd realizes in this moment that he is hobbling on one leg around the track. Do you remember that? He's hobbling on one leg, and at that moment, kind of the whole stadium is kind of standing up and beginning to cheer for Derek Redmond as he's hobbling one-legged to finish the race. And do you remember what happens when he gets to about the 100-meter mark? Through the crowd, bust this man. His name was Jim Redman, his father. Couldn't hold, I mean, people are trying to hold him back. He busts through the crowd. And you remember what he does? He comes up, he puts his son's arm around him and he grabs his son and he helps carry him to the finish line. Welcome to a picture of what the spirit of God is doing in every son and daughter. He is keeping your heart. He's helping you right now, working in you to the conformity of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.